Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast. This is episode number 10, the big 1-0, recorded August 20th, 2011. I'm Kyle Cronin. I'm Jason Solis. And I'm Nathan Greenstein. All right, and we want to just start right off with some uh, Ask Different news. Well, stuff that's been going on in Ask Different the past two weeks. The first off is kind of a big one. Ask Different is now one year old. Woohoo! <laughs> so it was on August uh, 17th, 2010, that the Ask Different, well, it was then called Apple, uh, site went into private beta. And it was in private beta for about a week, then it went into public beta until it was launched January this year. And yeah, it's just been, it's just been sort of a whirlwind <laughs> and it's it's exceeded my expectations for the site so much we have approximately 13,000 views a day we have over 7,000 questions 13,000 answers at 9,000 users it's just phenomenal um and I said this in my post but I I just sort of wanted to echo it here I just wanted to say a big thanks to everyone that helped us get here today from the people that believed in the potential of the site when it was only an Area 51 proposal to the early adopters that helped make our private and public beta successful, culminating in the launch of our site as a full part of the Stack Exchange network earlier this year, to Jin, Jin Yang, who designed the wonderful design that we have on our site, and to our loyal users who have tirelessly helped answer any question or nearly any question that's been thrown their way. So I just want to, uh, I just want to say thanks to everyone. And I, uh, here's to many years to come. Mm-hmm. And then even more recently, we've even been able to get our chat to become pretty frequently uh, during the week. Anyways, pretty frequently, uh, pretty frequently frequented, <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, the chat chat's activity has really picked up in the last, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe a little bit over a month and change between B-Mike, Abby, uh, Hobbs at one point, Wheat, and a bunch of other people that are talking over, yeah, not talking over not only the content of questions, but also a lot of things on the network, be them network issues or just general inquiries. It's been a pretty busy last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's it's really good to see, you know, people not only just sort of visiting the site and and even asking questions but actually really trying to engage with with the community there. That's that's really encouraging to see. Especially when those people have come from the during fireball sponsorship and other stuff like that and hacker news and that sort of thing. It's great to see users who get a link to us and then who find the site and come and decide they like it and stay and become active members of the community. Yeah. And, you know, for those people, especially, you know, when they sort of they're checking out the site and yeah, if they see that there's a chat and then they see that there are actually people actively chatting, they come in, we say, hi, welcome to ask different, you know, what, what brings you here? And it's just, uh, it helps be more welcoming. It helps be more interesting. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know that like uh, as a new user to a site, uh, you know, if you're coming to the site from, you know, you don't have any prior experience with Stack Exchange or anything like that, and you come to the site, you really don't know what to expect. And, you know, some sites are are really, you know, helpful and welcoming, and other sites, you know, they will, <laughs> you know, oh, you asked this this question wrong, <laughs> delete, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I we really try to be the former. Uh, I mean, you know, we do have to enforce rules on, on Stack Exchange, but, you know, we, we do try to, educate people and, and, and let people know what the expected standards are for the community. 
And we don't permaban people for one bad post, which is what I've seen on other places. Oh, and, yeah. And it's not if you if you want people to use your site, that's not really the best option. I think I think we've got a system that really works well. I also I also like that there are moderation features where you can you can say you can convert something that someone posted as an answer to a comment mm-hmm. and and stuff like that because previously before that your option was to see say either hey you should really you know post this as a comment and just hope that they see it and do it and have the reputation and have the reputation to do it or you just got to delete it and i mean ultimately you know it does have to get deleted but that's not really an ideal solution and i'm I'm glad that we have the the moderation capability to convert things into the format that they're supposed to be and i'm also glad that you, you can leave a comment before you delete something and the person who made the post will see it even though it's been deleted that's good I wish you could like leave a comment after it's deleted. Yeah, that would be usually. <laughs> Sometimes I, I forget to add a comment and then I delete it and then I Ugh, undelete, add the comment, delete it again. Yeah, <laughs> and it looks kind of weird in the in the history. It's like why, yeah. why, what's going on here? <laughs> I feel all left out in this conversation. <laughs> I'm not non-diamond. Yeah, a little more rep and you'll get the moderator tools. A little more. I have to do it fivefold from where I stand right now. You can do it. I can. I'm sure that before long, probably in another um, six months or so, there'll be another election for more moderators. Uh, Jason Solis, 2011. Yeah. <laughs> Start the campaign today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, hey, you know, I, I'd vote for you. Or would um, that be 2012 since it was takes place in January? Yeah, Who cares? Probably. The election, yeah. that we're, we're already having the, the CNN Republican debates and everything else. It's election, whatever year it is. Jason Salas for Ask a Different Moderator. Yeah. Although I have to say, for a site that's getting as much traffic as Ask a Different is, and I mean, we're probably, what, the number number five or six site on the network in terms of actual traffic, Ask a Different is surprisingly easy to moderate. I mean, oh, yeah. people just sort of, they're, they're courteous. They, you know, they just sort of get it. You know, they're not, we, very rarely do you get a hateful post or something that you know really should be deleted immediately um it's mostly about people that aren't really posting stuff correctly and and maybe this should be edited so it fits better and stuff like that but uh, it's 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 really easy actually it's surprisingly all the moderation work i do almost all of it anyway is people who are new to the community and don't really know how it works yet so our job is to educate them and fix any, you know, clean up anything that was a product of not knowing how things work. And very, very rarely do you see anything that's spam or, or offensive or anything like that. It's almost always, you know, oh, you meant to make a comment or, or you should have made a comment or, oh, well, this is actually off topic since it's, you know, da, da, da. Right. It's, it's generally users who aren't familiar with the site instead of users who are trying to cause a problem. Yeah, and actually, uh, if I could just sort of throw this out to our, our listeners, we we can't do this without moderator flags. We can't do this without suggested edits. Uh, I mean, there's we're at to the point now where, I mean, I could conceivably, you know, still look at everything posted on the site, but if I'm if I'm gone for a few days, I mean, there's there's really no way to reasonably catch up without spending a ton of a ton of time uh, reviewing everything. But uh, having a, a wide base of users of the site that they, if they see something that's out of place or see something that needs to be corrected, you know, they, okay, they can flag it, they can edit it, you know, they can, they can let us know of the, of the problem spots. And I, I really sort of want to encourage more people to do that because I, I mean, I'm sure that there's stuff that's sort of falling through the cracks somewhere. Um, and, and we'd like to catch that if possible. I mean, we really want to keep the quality of the site high. 
the stack exchange engine is has a very has a very unique combination of features much like wikipedia that really encourages other people to take care of a lot of this right yeah i'd say 75 percent of stuff i find is because it was flagged by either a user or by a community the automatic flagging and the rest of it is i'm browsing the site and i see something that didn't get flagged either because it's so new that no one's seen it yet or just because no one who cares to flag it has seen it yet but almost all of it's taken care of by flags and i can Mm. just browse that and get a fairly good yeah and and if there's stuff where like new users are are not doing things correctly or confused about stuff i mean uh, members of the of the of the site are more than welcome to point them in the right direction and and sort of let them know what they can do to to be better i mean uh, you can you can flag it but you know if, if members of the community want to just sort of take the initiative and and let people know how how stuff works i mean we we'd appreciate that as well mm-hmm. that's that's sort of how we how we scale <laughs> the the moderation of the site i've seen posts uh, comments as answers that someone from the community has already put in a comment that's you know almost exactly what i would have said you know here's how it works here's where you can learn more that sort of and it's really great for me because i can say oh yeah uh plus one to that comment and delete the or convert to comment or, or yeah. whatever a sort of in in, the, in that same vein i would like to talk about a little bit about the uh the, the concept of community wiki and i i i, I guess i probably should spend about a minute or so just sort of expounding the history of it uh community wiki was a feature that was introduced very early on it might have even been um part of the initial build of stack overflow when they released it to the public in august 2008 well basically what it is was the idea was to create a wiki like post and as part of that there were lower reputation requirements to edit the post and the the person that had initially posted the post does not get re- reputation from it and and anyone who answers right yeah so if you if you post a, an answer on a wiki post the answer is also wiki although i think that may have been added later but basically what this ends up what the, what people have, have done historically in stack exchange so they've sort of co-opted the the fact that a wiki post does not give reputation to the asker for questions that are not strictly like a Q&A where there's like a definite, you know, there's a definite question and here's a definite answer and there's the accepted answer and that's that. And sort of used for, for more open-ended stuff. And these these have actually historically proven to be fairly popular because, I mean, they're, they're fun to contribute to. You know, people. Uh, you know, people say, "Oh, yeah, what what do you use for host names on your network?" Oh, well, I use the elements of the periodic table. Oh, yeah, that's fun, and I, I like those questions too. Um, but there's sort of been a recent movement to get rid of them altogether. To you know, ratchet down and say that the only questions that can be asked on the sites are questions that exactly fit this this sort of Q, expected Q and A kind of format. And I mean, I sympathize with that certainly, but I also. I also feel that there there is some sort of there there is some expression uh, that the community would like to do that is is very constructive, but it does not completely fit within that. Uh, a classic example actually is the question that we highlighted last week, um, which things in Lion uh, make you smile or, or get you caught off guard. That I mean, for anyone. Even if you're the most diehard Apple thing, you're going to look at that question and you're going to see things that you didn't know about. 
tiny things in line that have changed. And it's, it's extremely useful and it's extremely educational. And it's been extremely well maintained by B. Mike. And I think that that's an example of something where it, it works. It wouldn't work to be split into a bunch of questions. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there, was, there was a post on our meta site five days, six days ago, something like that. And there was basically asking, how can we kill the community wiki questions? And the example question that they gave was an example that actually I, I looked at it and it, it was a bad example because what it was, I mean, the example was not bad. The question was bad. What it was, was it was, uh, what bugs in Lion bother you the most? And this this sort of fails the uh, <laughs> this this fails the educational test because I mean you can sort of see some benefit to be educated about bugs in Lion, but I mean if it's really a bug, Apple's going to fix it. And what it was was it was more like a venting piece. Someone was venting. Oh, you know what? <laughs> like I, I found these things in Lion that I don't like. How can I best vent them on the site? And um, it it was it was turned into a community wiki question and it it was allowed to proceed for a while but uh, I did close it as too localized and it, there is a very fine line to sort of walk between questions that are beneficial and again mentioning the the tiny things in line that make you smile or, or get you caught off guard that was as we mentioned in the last podcast something that was extremely popular not only on our site but on Reddit on Hacker News, it was posted on Twitter, I'm sure it was on Google+. I mean, that that thing basically made the rounds. And it, it basically is now sort of the definitive guide on the internet for the, the, the tiny things that Apple changed in Lion. Mm-hmm. And it's not like someone could ask a question that would give them the same information as that like mm. say say one of the one of the things that changed in lion is um if you connect to a wi-fi network that needs you to agree to terms of service finder opens a little window with with the terms and you can click agree and that's the kind of thing where it's useful information but it's not like someone would ask a question saying is there a way to get my computer to show me a <laughs> to wi-fi terms of service without opening a browser right so and then hold the on a second be, oh, hold on a changed. second hold on a second all right you know what's funny is i asked that very question it's 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 a, it's from a different angle admittedly but when i was on when i was on a trip earlier this year i had a problem where i believe something be it dropbox or something that's sparkle bound that that uses the sparkle update system was getting that was making the port 80 request and was essentially trapping that web page for the hotel wi-fi i was on so the question that i had asked was what can i do to shut off all network-based services at login in order to accept these terms and actually have internet connectivity at this hotel wi-fi so that was the that was the way of asking it as a problem uh, at the time, obviously, this was uh, two months before Lion's release, so it's it's not anything. It's not in any specific regard. But that was the question that I had actually asked. Ultimately, I agree that in the terms of there, there, this is this information of something that has been improved significantly in Lion fits that community wiki aspect better. Well, I, I stand corrected there, I guess. But I still, I still believe that almost all the stuff there, and I've been you know browsing that thread. It's been incredibly useful for me because it's all these little. Oh, I can do that now. I don't have to use my old clunky workaround anymore. Or yeah, that... oh, that's great. I want to start taking advantage of that feature right away. That sort of thing. That it's not the kind of thing that was actually an active problem for me, but it's really useful to see it there and it's not it didn't make Apple's list of, you know, whatever many new features 
because it wasn't big enough or something. And it's, I think a lot of them are not things that are meant to solve a direct problem that many people would have or would consider big enough to post a question about. Yeah, I completely agree, actually. There are, there are just many other examples, like like the, the the terminal one where if you right click on a terminal command you can get the man page i mean no one's no one's really going to even know to ask about that until they see the feature and once they see the feature there's no need to ask the question but unless someone posts something about it no one's going to know about the so it's one of those you know i don't know chicken or the egg catch 22 kind of problems and even if there is a subset of of answers on that question where someone could potentially ask a question about it that's okay someone can ask a question about that and someone can post an answer i mean it's 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 okay to have a little duplication on ask different especially if it's framed differently oh yeah because yeah if if someone else if if it is really something that would uh be a direct solution to a problem then someone's not going to be searching for the solution someone's going to be searching for the problem and it's not going to come up in the search results if someone searches for the problem unless it's made into a question. So the ones that actually are solutions to a problem, yeah, no problem having those as questions. Community wiki is good at creating a use where a question is good at solving a problem. Mm -hmm. And the best examples of those are one of the most highly, as far as I understand, one of the most highest rated in traffic questions on Stack Overflow, list of programming books and resources. That is a gigantic question Every uh, with every answer being split up into basically a language, be it database, uh, you know, database languages, scripting languages, and then general compiled and interpreted Python, C, Ruby, et cetera, et cetera. And then people um, edit those answers and the, to add the, you know, their own stuff add, to the... Add and delete. Yeah, as yeah. resources disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just the other, the other two... The, the, the big three beneficial ones that I've always enjoyed is Community Wiki, in addition to the one we've already talked about, are list of programming resources on Stack Overflow, list of terminal tips, uh, actually, no, list of screen tips and tricks on SuperUser was an amazing thread to read through. It was, there, there were so many things that I've started taking advantage of in the last couple of months since reading it. And then one of my personal favorites on Ask Different was the list of Mac OS X terminal tips and tricks. There, there have been a couple of built-ins that Apple adds into the binary set that uh, Linux generally doesn't have that's made things a lot easier. Well, this concludes our one-minute discussion of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, basically, I just sort of I, – I want to I end it with this. Uh, I mean, if people are thinking about asking a, a question like that on the site, be aware that unless it's extremely useful and helpful and and – constructive constructive yeah and and as long as there aren't too many of them then you know it'll be allowed but there are just there are so many reasons why a question is uh, a community wiki esque kind of question uh, is not a good fit for our community and i just want to let you know that if that's the case nathan and i have no problem closing them so and jason has no problem flagging them yeah (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just, I just wanted to, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want the floodgates to open, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't want to say this. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, oh yeah, I'm only going to ask can make one quiz. of those questions. Yeah, exactly. So, um, it's one of those things where, where like our current ratio is about one question, one community question in a hundred. And I think we're probably going to keep that approximately. Maybe it might even go down a little bit just because now there's more sort of focus on and and scrutiny on community wiki questions on on the stack overflow network but i absolutely intend to not have it go away altogether so i think it's a valuable piece of the site yeah 
And so finally, just sort of um, uh, ending our Ask Different News stuff that's happening, we the Chaos team, of which Abby is a member, and we mentioned Abby uh, on our last podcast, has decided to start a beta testing app program where they sort of it's like a matchmaking program where they match developers on stack overflow and game developers to people that want to test those beta apps on ask different super user and and so if you go to the the meta post uh, we will provide a link in the show notes there is a link to a form that you can fill out with you know your 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 name and stuff and your ask different id and basically what platforms that you have and, and that yes you'll be willing to test apps and i'm not sure if anything's been done with that information yet but i imagine that uh, very soon there will be apps you know developers that would like their apps tested so i mean if that's something that you're interested in by all means uh, go check it out especially with lion and ios 5 around the corner it, there's a lot of developers who don't necessarily have access to that and could use some testing <laughs> And don't just don't take that and think that you need the latest and greatest either. If you're if you're still on a you know a uh, iPhone 3G uh, or original for that matter and have a uh, the latest iOS 3 version, there are still apps that target that compatibility because it's supposed to be a broadly applicable application. Uh, beta testing is not just the latest and greatest, but it's every version down the line. So if you're if you have something that's about a couple of months old, sign up for it if you're interested. Actually, that's a very good point because usually the developer themselves likes to have the latest and greatest stuff and they need it tested on stuff that's older. You know, oh, well, I installed Lion, but I really want to test my app on Snow Leopard and Leopard and PowerPC. And <laughs> and, <laughs> well, and and if you have those things and you're willing to test it, I mean, it's, it's I'm sure. More valuable. Yeah, exactly. So if you've got that old stuff, great. I mean, that's exactly what they're looking for. All right. There was some tech news this week. A lot of tech news, actually. Kind of interesting because August is typically considered a rather slow month for tech news. Uh, it's not it's not Apple-related per se, but it's definitely big changes in markets that Apple is a major player in. Uh, so the first is Google buys Motorola, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. <laughs> hot, off the, hot off the heels of the big Nortel patent auction and then... Um... It's the other company that's kind of starting to ramp up. Interdigital, something along those lines. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of what I've read and I've been hearing about this is talking about how, as as it played out, Google lost the Nortel patent bid and the fallout from. Well, patents are evil and they stifle innovation. And this is Apple and Microsoft innovating with their pocketbooks and not with their not with their technical capacity. And this is why we have a problem which is silly on its head that Microsoft pulled the same thing in their own lawsuit, but that's outside of the point right now. There's a lot of interesting discussion going on about how the Android landscape is going to change now that one of the predominant names manufacturing hardware with Android on it is now directly owned by who's considered the sole source, who is the sole source of Android development. Yeah, that I, that creates a huge conflict of interest. And even though Google says, oh, we will operate Motorola as a separate division, and even if they do operate them as a separate division, no one will believe them. 
And it's still managed at the top. It's still managed by the same yeah. people if you go high enough. And, I mean, supposedly Motorola was actually, I mean, up until fairly recently, was considering running, I mean, Windows Phone 7 on some of their devices. <laughs> I mean, do you think that's really going to be likely now? Mm-hmm. I mean, if it was if it was an, if it it was was managed independently, if it was run independently, then that would be something that could potentially happen. But because they are very publicly owned by Google now, or will be as, if it gets approved, then I don't, I don't see anything but Android... Uh, in Motorola's future. I'm sort of optimistic in that uh, one of Google's problems with Android has been this this lack of tight integration between the software and the hardware and you got like, you know, Android uh, fragmentation and I mean Motorola themselves had that pretty awful Motoblur interface and hopefully this will provide a a family a line of phones available by multiple carriers in multiple stores that sort of has the canonical Google experience. And, I mean, that's that's potentially a good thing. Uh, as a converse, you've got companies like HTC and Samsung that are probably uh, really evaluating their other potential operating systems that they can run because they definitely do not want to be beholden to Google for the operating system but also be a sort of second-tier player um, having to pl- constantly play catch-up in that market, so... Of course, HTC already is cross-platform speaking mobily. The HTC Surround was a Windows Phone 7 phone, and I think there's at least one more. I don't recall the name right now. Yeah, and, I th- I'm, and there are Samsung phones as well. But I'm, uh, I'm just saying that it's very possible that you'll see like flagship phones by these companies and highly, highly marketed, highly promoted, not just sort of some, some sort of token uh, <laughs> partnership with Microsoft, which it seems to have been until now. If I were a phone manufacturer not that isn't Motorola, I would not really trust Google to continue providing me with the same quality operating system that they used to because now it's in their interest to only give Motorola the good stuff or maybe give uh, de- delay the release cycle for other companies or, or pare it down, throttle the the power or anything like that that they can do to make people want Motorola phones instead. Mm. If I were a device manufacturer, I would be... A little wary to continue. Yeah, I, I, I. This is actually what I see happening. Um, I mean, Google's not going to come straight out and say no more Android for you. What they're going to do is they are slowly going to add more and more things, requirements for the the hardware manufacturers to to meet for them to be able to run Android on on their phones. And that that sort of list of requirements is is just going to grow and grow and grow until either those other phone manufacturers are basically making exactly what Google is telling them to make, or they get so fed up and decide to go somewhere else, and, and either way, Google will win. They do have to be careful, because that's a fairly good antitrust lawsuit if they do if they go too far in that direction, but well, yeah, I definitely got th- to believe they're going to start. I think, I mean, Google could always just say, oh, well, we've always provided Android for free, uh, you know, it's it's open, blah, 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 they're, they're more than welcome to build their own version, but and and that, that we've never publicly provided our Android market, our Gmail, our Google Maps apps. So, yeah, I, I, I don't really see uh, an antitrust thing going that far. And certainly yeah. other manufacturers shouldn't rely on, on that sort of litigation to be successful. I don't think there is really any context of an antitrust lawsuit for something in... Uh, the only word that comes to mind is open source software such as Android is... Because antitrust works on the level of the entire like mobile carry mobile uh, industry, the entire mobile phone division, 
And there's, you know, there, there's the ever-increasing amount of articles talking about who has higher market share, Android all-encompassing or iOS all-encompassing, with Microsoft being the budding upstart right now. But antitrust, I, that, that in and of itself, I don't think is something that a carrier could really bring against Google for making their software tailored in any one particular direction. But it is kind of kind of a crazy, crazy move for Google to make. And they definitely seem to want to uh, enjoy some of the success that Apple's had with being able to control both the, the software and the hardware, as well as <laughs> have a ton of patents. <laughs> <laughs> the mobile industry is going to be very different next year. Oh, yes. No the, matter what happens, something's going to change pretty drastically uh, for someone. Yeah, uh, uh, not just because of this, but also due to the second thing, which is HP is basically discontinuing their webOS devices and they are looking to spin off their PC division. So the largest PC manufacturer in the world is is looking to basically divest themselves from that uh, that business. So what does this leave them? Their webOS is going the way of the kin, barely longer than it took for that to happen, kin in the first place. And they're spinning off their PC division, uh, which uh, desktops and laptops. And then there was uh, there was talk about a couple of other particular components like even hard drives and whatnot but what does that leave hp with well they also want to buy a company called autonomy which basically i think they do like enterprise solutions so basically hp wants to become ibm (laughs) (laughs) ibm's got a big head start oh yeah are we talking strictly on a software level or a hardware level? Well, IBM does not sell consumer hardware anymore. I mean, they sold that business years ago to Lenovo. So basically, all IBM does now is I think they I think they still do like enterprise grade servers, and and they also do like a very big consulting business. But they've been very successful at that. And HP, you know, the the CEO of HP, um, Apotheker, I think. Gosh, I really should have that in front of me. Uh, <laughs> uh, basically, comes from SAP, which is another big sort of enterprise vendor uh, place. And Maybe software, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And basically, he's trying to turn HP into another SAP. And I'm sure he probably would have bought them if, if HP had the money. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's it's just completely crazy that HP has given up. And I don't think we've seen that yet before in sort of the mobile industry. You could say, yeah, Microsoft sort of gave up with the kin, but I mean, they're they're still trying with their Windows Phone stuff, and they gave up with a Zoom. That's true. Oh yeah, that's true. But that was a long, prolonged failure. Yeah, that was at least three <laughs> or four years. Or yeah, so. I mean, the, the touchpad has only been out, I think, less than two months. And now it's just, I mean, there is basically a fire sale. I mean, they, they, the, today they went on sale for $99. In for, Canada, Best Buy Canada. Well, actually, uh, in the U.S. as well. Um, but, I mean, it, it, the, the stock just didn't last because $99 for a tablet, why not, right? Yeah. I mean, even if it's running like Palm OS 5, that's still better. <laughs> <laughs> took you a little bit to dig that dig that far deep huh yeah well i was just trying to think what's a really bad one <laughs> it's well it's actually really interesting sort of looking at the history of palm because for they were i believe part of 3com right they were part of 3com for a while and then they were spun off into their own company 
and they made PDAs basically. Um, they owned the PDA industry for yeah. I don't know how many years. I mean, you know, there was there was Apple with their Newton for a while, but I mean, no one really had those. I think they were also kind of very bulky and expensive. And and then, but the Newton was a long time before the Palm PDA stuff, right? Uh, I think they were sort of started around the same time. I mean, oh really? Me, oh yeah, Palm 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 goes way back. <laughs> I mean, when way back is mid nineties. <laughs> that's way back. Hey, that's me. way back in this current generation. Yeah, but yeah. So they they basically, um, you know, they they sort of had a very sort of iterative approach to their stuff, and eventually they they were licensing the Palm operating system to multiple other people. I guess kind of in a similar situation to what uh, Google will be with Android, and so they licensed it to Sony and, and Handspring, which the Palm later acquired Handspring. And and a few other companies, Kyocera, to make their own sort of Palm phones. And then it was split off into basically two companies. There was Palm One and Palm Source. And Palm Source had the operating system and Palm One had the hardware. And then Palm... This is getting boring. I'm sorry. I thought this was more interesting. Palm Source was then bought by a company called Access that was making like an Access, like a Linux platform for... Uh, smartphones so many familiar names and yet <laughs> yeah and i, I kiosera went i think the last time i heard that name was oh before i had my sidekick i remember seeing them and you know like radio shack and mobile mobile sellers mo- mobile phone vendors and uh, a lot of the other names sound familiar access sounds pretty familiar i wasn't even aware palm was two different companies yeah and that's one of those things that we've undergone a very generational shift and all of those names you know i palm shy of somebody may, taking the plunge of buying palm again this is probably the end of the road for the palm brand, brand exactly brand. i was sort of i was sort of culminating to that yeah i mean uh, i mean palm as a company has sort of sort of came to an end when hp bought them but they were still there was still a division inside hp that was making these devices and with this you know the same operating system that palm had and now it appears that Palm is dead. Palm, the hardware manufacturer, at least. So like I said at the start of all of this, Palm pretty much owned the PDA division for, I don't know, maybe maybe a decade? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, uh, definitely not an insignificant amount of time whatsoever. They were, they were the name brand for your handheld device, your contacts organizer, and everything else. When the iPad was debuted, there was talk about the iPad being this in-between market. They felt that there was room in between your laptop and your phone, and this was the iPad. Well, is that really true in the in the grand scheme of things, in the entirety of the market? Could you reframe that question? I'm not sure I can. We, we all know what the sales, the, the channel sales numbers is more or less for a tablet that isn't called the iPad. The infographic of Android tablets versus uh, obscure video game consoles is a very amusing thing to read with the 3DO, I believe, being the most sold one. Apple, Apple framed the iPad not as another mobile device, but they said that it exists between your phone and your computer. It doesn't, it doesn't do everything your computer's going to do, but it allows you to consume more than your phone. The question is, is it a class of its own, or does it fall into netbook territory, or does it fall into cell phone PDA territory? Yeah, that is sort of... That's the tricky thing because, I mean, a lot of people sort of, well, a lot of business analysts think that there is a tablet market. 
and that something that is vaguely rectangular shaped and flat and has a touch screen um yeah they're pretty much all the same and if you make one that's that's similar you know it blah 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 market share um but there's really not a, a tablet market there is an ipad market yeah and there, there really is a cell phone market because there's there's all of the feature phones as they're commonly referred to as plus the iphone plus android plus yeah. microsoft uh well, there there was the pre-3 but there there's at least there, there's a fair amount of modern choice at any given time there's no less than 20 to 30 possibilities across all the various carriers and then as you start going to netbooks and laptops you know everybody calls a computer a computer people don't call an ipad a computer in the traditional sense there's there is a difference there so that given my question that makes the ipad not a part of the computer or the portable notebook market but the ipad's just kind of in its own and perhaps this is a little bit too businessy of a question but when you try to gra- when you try to group it with its common elements what is there to group it with outside of ios devices at large yeah um it's 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 sort of hard to to categorize it. i mean you're right the the function if, if you want to categorize it by function uh there's a lot of people that would say that the ipad competes with netbooks but if you want to categorize it by, say, mobile operating systems, well, you want to categorize it with the iPhone and the iPod Touch. So, you know, when people say, oh, well, you know, Android is beating Apple, and then, you know, you say, well, what is that? Well, what do you mean by that exactly? You know, are you saying that there are more Android phones than Apple phones? Well, what about the, the iPod Touch? Or, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a very difficult um uh, market to sort of categorize and I think that any sort of attempt to uh, simplify it ultimately does not really capture exactly what, what's going on with that anyway you know what I might classify it as is the closest comparison mm-hmm. the Kindle and the e-reader market it's not a fair yeah. comparison just based off capability but that's the closest thing that you can actually make any heads or tails out of because we all know the extent of the Kindle and its web browsing capabilities and the fact that, mm, you know, web browsing-wise, you can at least look up resources, not to mention the built-in 3G for free is wonderfully helpful. And then that market is kind of starting to inch along with the introduction of the Nook. Well, the No never really went anywhere. But you're right, absolutely, that uh, when people are looking for, say, a device to well, I guess they're not even looking for a device. You know, they hear about Kindles and they want a Kindle. You know, they don't want an e-reader with an e-ink screen. They want a Kindle. And yeah, you're right. That's exactly the same situation that Apple's in with the iPad. I mean, people want an iPad. They don't want something vaguely iPad-ish. You probably just touched on it. There's not a market. There's a brand. Mm-hmm. People want an iPad. They don't want a tablet, and that's the big disconnect between. That's that. I think that's why the evolution of the smartphone took off the way it is. Because at least for the first year and a half, there wasn't a smartphone market. There was an iPhone market, and that's still the case to some people. But at least we're seeing the fact that a smartphone that the smartphone market is flourishing with all of the capability of companies now. Well, I mean, there was a smartphone market before Apple, um, but you're right. Actually, there was there was no multi-touch smartphone market. In fact. When Apple came out with multi-touch in their presentation, that was the biggest thing that I was like, no, that can't be. Yeah, because <laughs> the only other thing I saw multi-touch on was Microsoft had some sort of demo, like, surface thing where they, you know, moving stuff around. 
Oh, the surface. <laughs> yeah, I I it's really like a table. I really thought that it was it was probably you know in order to make it work on a mobile device, it was probably some like gimmicky. Like it doesn't really track multiple fingers, but it can it can you know do a few gestures and make you think that it's doing that. But no, it's I mean, it tracks multiple fingers, and and the software is extremely responsive in being able to intuit exactly what you're doing and and figure out what what. Uh, what you want to do and that was something that was completely new to the market and now look every single android phone sold now every single uh tablet well <laughs> again it, it all have that that same sort of interface and and yeah i mean you're right that um it's 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 hard to sort of quantify a market like that but that's true in any case i think we probably spent enough time on uh, Google and HP and Motorola. I wanted to sort of get around to a topic that I've been thinking about recently, and and that is owning your data. Uh, basically, I guess the the best example is Gmail or or webmail. All of my email that I get is stored in Gmail, and I don't have a local copy. So if Google suddenly turns evil or if, you know, suddenly my I, I get locked out of my account and this has happened to people. I mean, people lose access to their Google accounts. I basically lose access to five years worth of email. And that's concerning to me. And this is sort of a growing trend because there's more and more stuff where you're in the services where you're encouraged just to give them all your data and they will do magic things with it. You know, I uh, probably like half if not more of the latest Y Combinator startups that are that are coming out are all about oh send us your photos or you know let us help you share files with other people <laughs> and and it's it's we haven't really had too much too many problems yet but I can see that it could potentially be uh, a growing thing and especially like for companies that want to make sure that they're not really incumbent or, or relying upon the stability and good fortune of uh, <laughs> of com- of other uh, other companies that are not really um, related to their core competency that they will want to definitely have like a plan B in case stuff goes south. So, did you guys have any ideas on on basically how you how you'd accomplish this? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to come up with some very specific examples of things that you're talking about, and I know I've heard the horror stories. I'm just trying mm-hmm. to come up with one that's really notable. Okay, um, Google Docs. Really? Well, oh well, I'm just saying, like, you know, a lot of people do a lot of stuff in Google Docs. You know, I, I, Nathan says he does, like, a lot of, like, papers and Everything. stuff in Google Docs. Yeah. So Except I, file save as PDF or file save as Word document. It's, but have you done that with all your documents? And have you continued to do it after you've made changes and updated it? Yeah. I do it with the documents that I'm going to need later. And I don't know, you know, I, I mainly use Google Docs for school stuff, and that's all disposable to me. As soon as I've turned it in, <laughs> I'm never going to need to know about whatever I wrote a report about. And if I do, I'm not going to refer to my essay about it. I'm going to refer to some encyclopedia or something. So, but if I do actually write something meaningful, I will save a copy of it. Yeah. And if I am going to write something, you know, any software I do or anything like that is written in whatever editor I choose for that. And that's always a native app. Mm. You know, I actually do have one specific example uh, that is a reasonably good example, high high visibility impact, 
you know, will, will is something to be considered based off the individual. I'm sure we all here know of Delicious and a couple of the other alternatives like Pinboard and whatnot. Some time ago, uh, maybe two and a half years ago, there was a service that I stumbled upon called Magnolia. Same kind of idea as Delicious. It's a bookmarking service with social aspects to browse other things tagged similarly, not to mention the whole global tag ability in the first place. But it was a lot prettier than Delicious. It actually had color that wasn't a white background, black text, and blue links. It was it was a very well-maintained site. It was functional. It didn't have too many problems. And it actually supported OpenID, which was the real big hook for the community that I was in at the time. And one day it disappeared. And everything, everything we had bookmarked, all the resources we pointed to were inaccessible. The operators, the founders, the owners set up a little temporary page in place of all requests going to magnolia.com. And they started talking about the, the failure that had occurred in the first place and kept posting updates with regard to the, uh, the, the state of the data recovery that they had sent server hard drives off for. I don't remember the entire story, but basically it was in an unrecoverable state. I assumed that something physically went very, very wrong and insufficient RAID and no offsite backups is what I would have to guess. And as a result of this, what they said was, we're sorry, but we have no way of giving you back your data. Thankfully, these were just bookmarks. So is there some resource you stored for later reading that's lost forever? Yeah, presumably it's still online. And if it's not, then it's kind of a moot point. But what they said in the recovery process was that they and members of the community wrote scripts to use the Google cache of your user pages on Magnolia to get those bookmarks back, and then they had converters to be able to stuff it into your browser's bookmark collection. Wow. Yeah, and it was, they, they talked about, they tried to get it out of RSS archives, they tried to get it, you know, scrape the slightly altered HTML that the Google Index has, I think maybe even the Wayback Machine, web.archive.org, has. And I guess the point to take is to take a system that disappeared and had to rely on the the good or bad uh, good or bad graces of caching services and search engines in order to get this stuff back. In the case of anything private, it, it was gone. If you had if you had a bookmark that was not public, it it's gone because that's obviously not cacheable. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, an incident like that really underscores just how out of out of your control your your data that you've put into the cloud is. And I think that you know smart people will start planning for the eventuality that they may lose access to a service. That service may go under. That service may may decide to suddenly charge you a lot more money to access the same sort of stuff, etc. Or if you just don't trust them anymore, you know, like say, for example, tomorrow Google says, you know, oh, we're going to suddenly sell all the contents of your emails to advertisers. And you're like, wait, what? No. (laughs) (laughs) And you got to get your stuff out of there fast. Uh, Well, I guess I guess that's probably not not a a good analogy because then you would have the ability to change it. But like I I think we we, we probably should provide people with some advice, like, for example, email uh, if you really want to control your email you have to control your email address uh, having a, you know something something at gmail something something at yahoo uh, that's giving those companies basically exclusive control over the ability to contact you via email and more recently even your digital identity to a large extent 
Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's been a lot of stuff online about how basically your email is your identity, and so in order to get your own email address, you need your own domain. Fortunately, those are ten dollars, eight dollars, whatever. Um, you know, you can go to like Hover or Gandhi or something like that, and and register a domain. You can even, I mean, if you want, once you register the domain, you can even use Google's apps for the domain and and use them to host your email until you don't trust them anymore or, or, or whatever. Or you can choose to run your own mail server. Now that's a little trickier. There are some sort of there are some services that do basically offer private mail hosting, but they're mainly geared towards businesses and stuff. And that's another service you have to trust. Uh yes. Yeah. Although I trust I I trust a service more if I'm giving them money. <laughs> because if I'm not giving them money, then they stand to lose absolutely nothing by stopping providing service to me. But I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I guess one other obvious thing, if you're using Gmail, even if you like using the web interface, pipe it into mail and open mail every once in a while or some other native client so that it downloads copies of your messages so that in case you do decide to stop using Gmail or Gmail decides to stop letting you use it, then you do have at least local copies of anything. That's yeah, exactly. That that was my going to be my other suggestion is to use a program to connect to Gmail's IMAP interface and to sync everything and make sure that you have an entire local copy of everything, and and so that's basically how you get uh, charge of your email. Other other stuff, let's say like music, you can instead of using a service like Google Music or um, Amazon Cloud Player, Amazon, yeah. What are the, what are the others? Audio, um, Spotify. Um, Doesn't Walmart have one, or did they stop theirs or something? I don't know. Well, basically, I'm talking about like streaming services. I mean, yes, I, some of them, most of them, you are paying them uh, a subscription fee. And granted, it's not really your music. It's not stuff that you've created. So there's not really that. You're not losing anything if, if you no longer have access to it. But it is kind of annoying. But it's it's also it's something to think about, though. Like a lot of people are transitioning from having music locally stored in their computer that they can safely move to a different computer, share with friends, all that stuff, to basically a service that they just have to trust. The photos. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people, just you know, they take photos on their phone, whatever. They you know they send some of them to Facebook, but then they just delete them off their phone. You know, instead of actually syncing them to a computer using iPhoto or something like that. And you're basically, you are giving Facebook control over the only way to access your photos, which is, I mean, bad idea. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, Facebook might have a server error like Jason's thing had, and they might again turn evil. Although I would contend that they already are. <laughs> I was waiting how long it was going to take you to make that point. <laughs> I needed to savor it, Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even something like Picasa, you know, Picasa web albums. I mean, it's that's the one that I use personally because I find it's actually it's sort of the most fully featured and the one that sort of meets my expectations the most. But I mean, it is a Google service. Uh, Google does offer something called Takeout for it, where in theory you're able to basically say, "I want to download all my photos," and then it will basically produce a big zipped file that you can then download. And then extract, and then you get your photos. But I, I found that that, at least right now, is not very reliable. Basically, I was not getting all my photos, and the photos that I did get were not at the full resolution because I, I do upload at the full resolution. So I mean, that's just like another example. Like I mean, I'm, I'm totally covered because I have well, 
I, I do have a local copy and I also have a backup of that local copy. I mean, something could happen to both. And it is important to have offsite backups. But uh, you you really need to sort of diversify and, and make sure that your stuff is, is within your control. And most of the time it means on your hard drive. My pick of app of the week is actually related to this. Um, and it's Audio Galaxy. And... So I I was sort of talking um, on the podcast a while ago about you know, how I really didn't like Spotify's concept. Spotify, that's it. Spotify's concept. Uh, how I was trying out uh, Amazon's music, Google's music, that sort of stuff. You know, basically uploading my music to the cloud. And I'm I'm assuming that once iCloud comes along, I will check that one out as well. But Audio Galaxy is actually I don't know why I haven't heard of it before. What it is is it's basically a little program that you download onto your onto your computer that runs. It scans your entire music library. It basically creates like an index that says, you know, these are all the songs. Uploads that to the the Galaxy Audio Galaxy service. And then what you can do is you can you go to your the Audio Galaxy website, you see all your stuff there, you just hit play and it starts playing. No, no upload required. Well, why is that? Well, because anytime that you want to play a song, it's automatically streamed from the computer that has it. So as long as my laptop's on, I can, you know, from anywhere in the world, and I can just open up a web browser, I could just go into my Audio Galaxy account, start playing the music, and then it'll just stream from my computer wherever it is to, to wherever I want to play it. And they also have an iPhone app that does the same thing. So you can sign into your Audio Galaxy stuff, you, you know, and you have all your iTunes playlists, you have all your iTunes music in there, you just select what you want to play, and it just streams automatically over 3G or, or Wi-Fi or whatever. So I think that's probably going to be my my choice of how I'm going to be listening to music in the future. And from what I've heard about iCloud, it, it's, there's, it doesn't really have that much of a compelling... Uh, feature set to make me want to switch away from from Audio Galaxy. It's really interesting. Do, do they offer any kind of paid tiers in order to have actual storage that you can access no matter what the situation of the home computer is? You know, I don't know. I'm going to check it out right now. Uh, it's while you do that. Just speaking technically, uh, I've heard the name Audio Galaxy before, and that was about nine or ten years ago in the heydays of Napster, Grokster, Kazab. Uh, um, what was the GNU Nutella? Audio Galaxy back then was called Audio Galaxy Satellite, and it actually technically worked on a very similar level. You searched for something in a traditional search engine manner, and then they return you all of the media sources that the Audio Galaxy client is aware of, and they let you freely download, and they list quality and a bunch of other information about the files, and they let you download whichever version of the song you're looking for. Yeah, I can sort of see why that might have been a problem. <laughs> uh, but I mean, the way it works right now is just it's it's like a it's like your own little private cloud, except there's no actual uh, cloud storage. It's just they're just an intermediary that uh, connects your computer that's somewhere to your iPhone that's somewhere. Yeah, it's and, just interesting that they repurpose the same backend technology that they limited it to you know the authenticated the authenticated devices as opposed to the whole index at large. Yeah, it does not look like they have any uh, paid plans, although, I mean, I may be mistaken about that. And they have a little counter at the bottom that says users have added basically nearly 1.5 billion files since August 2010. So this is actually, this seems to be a fairly popular service. And if they turn evil, you still have all your files. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if they turn evil, if they decide to start charging me $20 to use it a month, I'm just going to be like, hmm, 
I'll find something else. And but I still have all my data. You know, it's, I'm not giving them access. I'm not giving them anything. You know, Mac only. No, actually, it's available for Windows, Mac, iPhone, and Android. So. It's truly cross-platform. I was really hoping that you were going to say that at least the back end runs on Linux because I could take advantage of that in uh, a server that I do have. I could really take advantage of that for media that is infrequently listened to but the you know, ease of access when I really want to. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I was just going by the icons mm-hmm. on, on their own page. It may have a Linux client. I don't know. It's worth looking into at least, but um, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, the the one downside is that I have to sort of remember to have my computer on and online and serving up these files, you know, b- before I head out somewhere. But I think you know, as long as I sort of get into the habit of doing that, uh, it, it's the perfect solution. And I really wish that more services, uh, rather, there was there were more services that that operated in similar fashion. Like, I would love to be able to say share my photos or share my documents in a Dropbox like fashion without having to, you know, pay for online Dropbox storage, you know, it's, it's just a, uh, it's just a really sort of neat, neat concept. And I mean, if you got the bandwidth, why not? Yeah, absolutely. It fills a, it fills a, it fills a good gap. That's kind of been lagging again in the last, in the last couple of years with all the, uh, you know, places that kind of did it more nefariously, like I was talking about with Audio Galaxy Satellite, it kind of comes back into the realm of people that uh, of uh, service that people need. That's kind of gone by the wayside in the last couple of years. So you had an app, Jason. Uh, my app is an iOS app called iScrabble. I've been using Last.fm for many, many years. Not so much on the radio side, though I have paid for a subscription and I use it whenever I'm in no particular musical mood because uh, the recommendations are actually pretty beneficial. But come the advent of iOS, there has been a big lack of the ability to scrabble what I'm listening to on the go. There are just, a couple just of to other... sort of clarify, what does it mean to Scrabble? Something? A, a Scrabble is basically just a listening history. Uh, Last.fm is a service where as you listen to things, the artist and title and album get sent to Last.fm servers, and they use this information in order to provide you with a radio station of artists that you listen to, to provide you recommendations that you may like. And then obviously the other aspect of Last.fm radio is just say, similar to Pandora, say, I want to listen to this artist, and it just gives you all the similarities all of which are automatically generated by user data for the majority extent anyways they have social features you know uh add friends and it'll show you your musical compatibility and it's just it's just a big analytics engine they've been around for some time uh, the scrabble is just the act of the the text transmission of what you listen to period so you ah. have your play counts your time it occurred all that I know I tried some scrabbling application some time ago and they've really only been prolific in the last year pretty much as of iOS 4 you know backgrounding uh, even to a limited extent being the major reason for that but iScrabble really covers a lot of ground in a very in the least antagonistic way Uh, and I and I've helped out with some beta testing bug reporting and it's gotten a lot better in the application it has a lot of it has everything but radio which I don't believe Last.fm makes available to clients anyways but you can look at your profile you can look at your friends profiles you can access all of the social aspects of Last.fm in general artist wiki information so on and so forth the best part about iScrabble is the fact that it allows you to do three things one 
all related to scrubbling, of course. One with the application over uh, with the application open, it has a media picker that lets you choose what you want to listen to over your entire iPod library, your podcasts, your playlists, and then of course all of your musical media in the first place. And so while the application is open, it will actively scrabble them per the specifications specified by Last.fm. The second mode of scrabbling is a real-time scrabbler. With the advent of again with the abilities that iOS 4 provided in backgrounding, you can use the sound playback built into iScrabble so that you can multitask and music will continue to go and Scrabbles will continue to go active. One, this is a battery drain because it's an alternative player. Two, because iScrabble is the audio source, if you do anything else, such as use your iPod or watch a video on YouTube, it will take over playback. It will shut iScrabble off, and then what you're viewing will take over playback. And you will not be able to just use, like, the double-tap the home icon and go to your playback icons. You will not be able to use the play icon to get it back. That's the biggest downside is hard to resume. Wait, why Why is that? That doesn't make any sense. Because the media controls only control the active application, or if there is no active audio application, it controls the iPod. So if you override iScrabble with something else, say YouTube, i.e. Safari, or the YouTube app, then hitting using those functions will either pause the YouTube video, restart the YouTube video, or if you're not even in Safari, it'll just go back to the iPod. Huh. And that's a, that's a limitation of the iOS SDK. But otherwise, if you start playing, it will, as long as the iScrabble is the last thing to play, you can play and pause freely. It's just until you change it. Uh, I, I think there's some other condition that I haven't quite figured out that can reset the state of media controls. But for, for actually actively listening, but not necessarily having iScrabble open, the real-time Scrabbler is very helpful. The last one, and the best one, which I use constantly, is the background Scrabbler. It if iScrabble goes away for any reason and you have background scrabbling on, it creates a cache of your entire library. Uh, so you're using your iPod, you're using, uh, you're using it off and on over the course of a day or so, and much like the Last.fm desktop application, but without the need to actually have it running, plug it in and sync, the background scrabbler, when iScrabble is reopened, will read the cache that it made locally and look at your iPod playback history, find the differences, and send them with regard to their particular time listened. It admittedly has a couple of problems, which again I think is kind of a iOS limitation, but it's gotten drastically better over the past couple of months and it's accurate it plays repeated songs it uh, has the particular time that they were played at and it just it's it's hard to really convey how pain-free it is compared to other applications i've used and how the application has had problems in the past like i said there had there's had to be a specific fix for duplicated songs uh occasionally songs are scrabbled with the current time instead of the time that they were played but it's just gotten a lot better, and I use the background scrabbler constantly. You know, I I use voice command on my phone when I'm driving, so I say, listen to album Bitrip Flux original soundtrack. Plays a couple of songs, and whenever I can actually access my phone safely, I turn on iScrabbler, and it, it sends that entire playlist to Last.fm. It has two different versions for iOS, both universally compatible. He has one called Pick and Mix, which is ad-supported and has a couple of in-app purchase functions in order to add, like, 
the ability to change the color and of course removing ads and a couple of other ones and then he has iScrubble Premium which I believe is 7 bucks which just gives you everything in the first place Pick and Mix is great because the background scrobbler is cheap and it's an easy way of getting this information to Last.fm Wow, so that's... <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big to-do in the iOS world in order to get it to Last.fm well, that's I guess that's the thing. Like I've I've never really to, like I guess to me I'd always sort of thought Last FM was just oh share with your friends what you're listening to, which I have absolutely no interest in doing or <laughs> seeing what other people are listening to. Uh, so it never really held much interest to me. But I mean, uh, it sounds like there's there's more to it. Like you can probably do better analytics on you know what you've listened to recently. The recommendations, especially with the new genres I've been getting into, have been ridiculously helpful. They've been very well done. No, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I would. I mean, it'd be nice if something like that was built into iTunes. I mean, I I mean, you could say that Ping is, but I mean, that's <laughs> genius. Not... Although that's not that's not songs that you don't already have. That's yeah. the big problem there. Oh, the genius sidebar thingy links to the iTunes store. Yeah, well, True. I mean, I I guess I'm not so much interested in songs that I. That, oh, we, we you listen to this, we think you might be interested in that. Um. What I would like to do is I would like to create a playlist that is like recently top played. Like I, I might I might go, you know, I might put something in my iTunes library and then forget about it for two years. And all of a sudden I listen to that song, you know, 30 times, you know, in a week. And you, you could do that with iTunes. Is there a way? With, I all am aware. With, yeah. With, with smart playlists, you could do a, a smart playlist that says like play count is greater than this in the past date range i think really or maybe, Ooh. or maybe i don't know it might be i haven't looked at it in a while it might be as limited as play count is at least this high yeah that's what i thought it and was has been played in the last few days i should look at that yeah all right well do you want to talk about your your app nathan yeah well mine is less interesting than than your two but it's it's still nice, I think. It dates back to my iTunes days, and I still use iTunes to listen to music if it's something I already own and I don't want to hear ads from Spotify. How quaint. Uh, the... <laughs> no, I use iTunes too. <laughs> the app is called I Love Stars by Potion Factory, and it's a clever little utility that sits in your menu bar and is invisible until you start playing a song. And when you start playing a song, it's got five little dots that slide down, and you click on the dots to rate the song, same as you know, same as in iTunes. And you can right-click on it to see the current album information, current song and stuff. And uh, if you've already got a rating for the song, it shows the number of filled-in stars. And it works well because it talks directly to iTunes. It's it's uh, you know, you you click uh, click it in the menu bar, and iTunes updates its rating information. And it's really the easiest way to rate music I've found because I use that a lot to help filter with smart playlists and that sort of thing. And it's, it's a lot easier cause you don't have to switch back to iTunes and it's got a nice little option where uh, it reminds you if you haven't rated a song and it's near the end, it kind of flashes a little bit and it's very effective to just make me look up. Oh yeah. Rate the song uh, four or whatever. And that way I can rate it before it stops. And it's, it's really good for just knocking out an album and rating all the music in it so that I can filter it later. And it's much more convenient than switching back and forth to iTunes or using Mini Player or anything like that. And yeah, it's very well done, I think. It's $1 on the Mac App Store. We'll give a link. And did you say that it disappears when iTunes isn't currently playing anything? Right. That's one of the reasons I like it. You don't waste any. That's what he space. said, yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, 
why there I, I can think of a lot of applications that should uh, a lot of menu bar items that should disappear whenever they're not actively contextually relevant namely last of for example okay maybe that was the only one <laughs> no i yeah i mean like uh, there's uh there's just i i have a lot of stuff in my menu bar right now what what do i have dropbox could go away until there's like actually activity that. yeah oh, that's true until there's activity that's cool that would be that would be pretty cool and like um, I notify for for Gmail notifications could go away unless there's a new message. It's all about the time because it needs the, the the big problem is it when it needs to convey information and when it doesn't. And if you don't look at it, where's my icon? What's the state of things? Oh no! Right. Well, if you once you've adjusted to the fact that there there will only be an icon with a number if I have unread messages. Mm-hmm. Then it would work fine once you once you've adjusted for that. My menu bar is a mess, and then with things like Xcode that have a ton of menu entries, uh, the the fact that you can lose functionality of I actually think yeah. it's the the menu bar icons override the menu bar options. Yeah, they do. that's uh, problematic. Mm-hmm. Another discussion for another day. Hey, maybe next week. Yep, we will add it to our ever growing list of things that we might but probably won't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's an effective list. It is. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> our our question of the week this week is uh, why doesn't the red dot shut down the program? Uh, is asked by Andrew Warner on August tenth, and it's that's actually a really interesting question because that's something that is fundamentally different between macOS ten and uh, other operating systems like Linux and Windows. In that on those pro- on those operating systems. You can have more than one open window for a program, but you can't have a program open that doesn't have an open window. I mean, unless you're running something in the taskbar. But but in Mac OS X, uh, there are lots of programs where you can have the program open, but not have any windows open. And in fact, that's a really, really fantastic feature of the operating system. Like, I open up my mail client, Sparrow, and, and close the window, but Sparrow is still running. I don't have to minimize it. I don't have to do something like that, like you'd have to do on on Windows, Twitter, iChat. I mean, even things like uh, Safari. When I don't have any Windows open in Safari, you know, it still remains a- an active application, and and it makes it so that I could easily just switch right into it and open a window without having to wait for the application to load. So it's uh, it's good. And for for apps like Safari, it would be a momentary inconvenience to open it with. Use uh use Spotlight or Alfred or whatever to open it instead of just Command Tab to switch to it. But for an app like Photoshop that takes thirty years to load all the fonts <laughs> and everything when it opens, if if I'm in and out of Photoshop a lot, if and you know it, my mood generally dictates how much I use Photoshop in a given day, week, whatever. So if I if I am using Photoshop a lot. Even if I don't have any document open or don't know exactly what I'm going to be working on, I'll just leave it running but closed. And you know, I've got the memory to spare. That's fine. And it doesn't take a whole lot of memory without an open document. And then once I need something, I can just drag it to photo- Photoshop or go to Photoshop. So the actual, the actual answer to this question is it makes things faster. When you have the resources to spare, everything snaps up into focus as soon as you invoke it immediately. 
what's amusing about this is that as a Vista, Windows does this same exact thing from the opposite direction, where as this question says it, the application doesn't go away and you still have to sit through the initial invocation. Windows has what's called prefetch that will cache resources for applications you use continuously so that when you close it and reopen it, it just pops right back in in a hurry, where I think OS X is quite a bit more elegant. Go figure. Yeah. Can, it, where... can, can Vista prefetch my email? I mean, come on. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's not a I mean, solution. <laughs> it's 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 funny because people are complaining. So people that are kind of weary about resume and that kind of thing are complaining about the iOSification of OS X. But this feature has existed for I, I think the majority of OS X's life. Um, with the dock and the fact that it only it only in the dock it only shows you active applications and not the entire plethora of Windows that Windows shows you it, it serves to bring things back a lot quicker and it, it requires a little bit more resources but we're in a day of two or more gigs of memory in all but the most uh, actually i don't even think you can get less than two gigs of memory in an apple uh in an apple computer anymore yeah i don't think so either so actually also um mac os 10 it doesn't it doesn't always not close the application when you hit the red thing it's actually application specific there are some that do close when you close the window and those are applications that only have one window or sometimes and those would be things like system preferences uh, iPhoto photo booth i mean these these applications you know the application is the window the window is the application you close the window you close the application so it's it's really very a flexible a very flexible sort of method of closing Windows, but not programs, and I would say vice versa. But obviously, you can't have an open window without an open program. So <laughs> Microsoft's remote desktop client is another example of this too. There's no local resource when the connection ends. Goodbye, application. Really? Because I would yep. think that you'd want you'd want to maybe be able to like yeah, boom, boom, connect to a different thing. Oh, you can have you can have multiple ones. It's just the fact that there's no. Exactly as you were just saying, there's no local resource, there's no local data, because the whole point of it is remote connectivity. So when you're not connected to anything remotely, then the application disappears, because what else is there to do with it? Open a new connection. Well, I don't that's, know. Not too, that's not too hard for me in a launcher, but I can... Uh, that that argument holds true for a lot of things, sure. Yeah, I think I think that's probably just Microsoft thinking that everything is like Windows. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I think that probably just about does it. What do you think? Works for me. This has been the Ask Different Podcast. You can find us on iTunes if you search for Ask Different Podcast. We have a blog with all our show notes, so you can go there if you want to see any of the links of stuff that we've mentioned or if you want to subscribe to our RSS feed. That is at podcast.askdifferent.net. If you want to email us, you can send us an email at podcast at askdifferent.net. Thanks for listening.